The scripture reading today, uh, we've been looking at the footsteps of the king. Both what Jesus teaches us in the book of Mark uh, about what it means to follow him, but also literally to follow him as he prayed, as he resisted the devil in temptation. And then we're looking at core characteristics of a follower still within the footsteps of the king. So our scriptures are, are short, but thick. From Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, The Spirit immediately drove him, this is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. And then moving to Mark chapter 13, where Jesus gives a future picture of his followers who, as a core characteristic, naturally resisted temptation. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all the world for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. We're looking at what we long for. All but one year that I've been at the barn, I, in, the, uh, in the spring, the early spring or late winter, I begin preaching from one of the Gospels because what we long by faith is to see Jesus and his face as it actually is, to hear his words, to understand him as best we can with our limits. And I'm utilizing a book called The Theology of Mark, written by Hans Beyer, uh, who's a professor in seminary, and especially a chapter right in the middle where he points out core characteristics, attributes of followers of Jesus. These are different than commands. These are things that are inevitable to those who follow the king. We long to follow the king. And one of the core characteristics is resistance to temptation. And I think that we think of temptation symptomatically. When we say the word temptation, we start to think of something that we're tempted to do and actually conscious of it. Jesus modeled, taught, and implied that it is a heart issue. And biblically, heart is mind, emotions, and will. I think that we think of when we're tempted to just fire that email back to that person. Perhaps we're conscious of that. I think some of us think of temptation as the website. We don't want to click, but sometimes click. Some of us, it's eat or drink. For many of us, it's lying or silence when we could show love to the neighbors in our life. Jesus didn't teach of it that way. doesn't mean those things aren't included in the umbrella category of a core characteristic of a Jesus follower being one who chooses life and not death. Oftentimes, though, when we stumble into sin, we weren't thinking about it. Remember in Avengers Infinity War when Thanos asks the collector, the collector says to Thanos, why would I lie? And Thanos says, I imagine for you it's like breathing. For some of us, there are temptations in our life, and I don't know which one it is, the email, the website, the eat, the drink, the lie, the silence, but we do it without thinking about it. 
one temptation that I've been freed from is yelling at my kids because I'm not tempted. I just yell at them. But then I'm tempted to explain why I did so instead of repenting. By the way, sometimes I don't apologize or repent. When they were little, slamming doors, I would yell. And I would never apologize. And sometimes I would scare them. And I was like, I'm, I don't want you to be scared, but I'm not going to apologize because you could lose a finger. Then I'm tempted. I'm not tempted to yell at them because I, just, I, lo- I, I lose uh, control of my temper for a moment. And then I feel very grieved. And my kids are old enough that they'll start to explain to me how they understood why I reacted the way they did. And I'm tempted to let them. Instead of saying, sweetie, it's not you. I'm sorry. Yes, you shouldn't have been doing that, but my reaction was out of proportion. I'm tempted to go through the history sometimes with them, because that helps. I'm tempted to, in all sorts of ways, and yet the opportunity for me is to repent to my 11-year-old and my 14-year-old. This series is about following the king, following in his footsteps, and then learning how his followers followed. And in this way, Uh, the category of temptation overlaps with the category um, from a a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, guarding the heart. And it overlaps with repentance because the point is not to not sin. The point is to choose joy. You know what I mean by that? Not false dichotomy. But to choose joy. To learn to repent to my children more so than to do everything in my power by my will and my exertion to not sin. Actually, to choose life. And those may sound too similar for you to grab onto that, but the gospel of Jesus is not stop sinning. It's He has died for you, purchased new life for you, follow. Jesus did guard His heart, though, in the categories of the book of Mark. Guarding heart is learning to pray and surrender to God. And I find it amazing that Jesus had this core characteristic. He needed these same things that we need. I'm sure his need was different than ours in experience because he was without sin. And in that way, as a second Adam, theologically, I'm also sure that he needed to pray. Circumstantially, his cousin dies. He needs to get alone and pray. This is not a to-do list. Resisting temptation is not a to-do list. It's a choice of life. Learning to pray is not a to-do list. It's a spiritual practice where we remember that we're loved and approach the throne with boldness. A core characteristic or an attribute can sound so quickly like a to-do list. And the second that we do that, we're falling into one of the crises. These are the first four sermons in this series where we believe that we can actually merit something before God, which is a profound misunderstanding of his holiness and our ability. We come into the world thinking we have the ability to save ourselves. We think we're autonomous. We think we know what's best. And especially in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus dissuades us of that through miracle, through teaching. For Jesus, he guarded his heart as a way of turning his heart toward God and receiving rest. For us, it's returning our heart to God, which is what repentance means. Choosing life. This is why we study the scriptures. This is why we do Bible studies. This is why we're continuing to do Bible studies with youth ministry and men's and women's and small groups. Is because we long to know what God says about himself and about us and about the flourishing 
with God life. This is why we do these things in community, so that we can move towards life and away from death. I am not a morning person. My wife is at home right now saying, <laughs> Amen. But years ago, I was in a group, uh, men, some of whom are my best friends in the world, and one of them, I can't remember if texting was around yet. Let's say it was. He texted us and said, Guys, we need to not do the study tomorrow. I need to share something with you. The next morning, I jumped out of bed. As my heart comes alive to that, us learning from one another's stories about the flourishing with God life, which involves resisting choices of death or temptation. I was so thankful for him. And there's a tension for us to notice. Jesus prayed. Jesus surrendered to God. Jesus forgave his enemies. And yet he was perfect. So as we learn to do these things, it's not going to be exactly like he did it because he was he. And we are us. And yet we can still follow him. How's your prayer life? How's it going? Is it different? Mine is. I am closing my door more often because my heart is anxious more often. And I might commend to you again an incredible article. I want to, there's a podcast, Brene Brown, interviewing the leader that I haven't listened to yet and I'm excited to listen to it, though I'm nervous because I think it'll strike some emotional chords for me. And I know you're not all wired like me, but the article is The Anxiety You Experience is Grief. And when I take a breath and remember that, then I go into my room and I close the door and I pray. How's your prayer life? Is it the same? Good for you. Has it gone away because of grief at God? That's a, that's a Christian move. That's like a psalmist. Have you doubled the number of prayers for other people and forgotten yourself? Are you praying more for yourself? I wonder. And, the, and, and I'm not going for something there. I'm not, I don't have more guidance from you than this. I hope you've heard me say this before. I hope you learned this before we ever met. Especially when our emotions are high. When shame and fear and anxiety threaten to take over, we learn to pray like psalmists. I deliberately included the groaning aspect of Psalm 5 in our call to worship, both because it's in Psalm 5, and my favorite way to pray the psalms is to pray the psalm that day, plus 30, plus 30, plus 30, plus 30, because we'll end up allowing the psalms to pray us. And especially when you skip them, that way, when you go 30 at a time, you will express every basic emotion to God. Not like the whole emotion wheel, you know, but every basic emotion to God. You will express anger and sadness and anxiety and grief and joy, which most of our weeks include some of that. I know that some of you experience overwhelming anxiety that could tempt you towards depression. I know some of you are overfeelers. And prayer is one of the sweetest gifts that we receive. And prayer is both a core characteristic of a follower of Jesus, an attribute of Jesus and of his followers, and it is perhaps the most profound way that we learn to resist temptation. And temptation is not simply the email or the website. It's when we sense the fear and sometimes choose diversion which is not evil, but it won't give rest to our hearts. 
Welcome to my whole morning from 8 to 10 this morning. I should play Monopoly. No, I should pray. I mean, two hours. We follow the king as he guards his heart and resists. And as I was working on this sermon, it is obvious that Jesus resi- is clear that Jesus resists the temptations of Satan. And in, the, in, in uh, Matthew and Luke, we, know, we find out a lot more about this temptation than we do from Mark. But we do know that Jesus resists the temptation. But I don't like resistance as a verb to help us see this core characteristic and trust the Holy Spirit to grow us up in it. So I had Eric cross it out at about 10.04 this morning. And it was amazing to watch him do that. Thank you, Eric. We follow the king as he guards his heart, which frees us. His work frees us. I didn't like the outline because not sinning is not the gospel. Sin management isn't joy. When Paul describes the kingdom, he doesn't say, the, <laughs> the kingdom of God is rules. He didn't say the kingdom of God is not sinning. It involves that only as an expression of the peace and joy of the with God life. Sin management isn't joy. A free person doesn't say, I became free by keeping twice as many rules as I had before. Now, you're watching them from a distance. You might think that it does seem that they do keep the commands of God, but they do so because they know they've been freed. A freed person knows that they were freed not because of their tactical efforts towards their own temptations, but because Jesus rescued them and they long to move into the joy that he purchased for them. Jesus defeats Satan with respect to temptation in Mark chapter 1, then defeats Satan and death in Mark chapters 14 through 16. I don't want us to learn to resist. I want us to learn to enjoy our freedom. And if those sound like similar things to you, perhaps you are very mature in your faith. But to many of us, when we hear temptation, it's like, okay, so there's something that I have to stop doing. It's that there is life for us. It is interesting, isn't it? You know, we believe this nondescript Jewish carpenter went out into the wilderness and spoke with an ancient adversary who is not his equal in any respect, is in fact a fallen angel, resisted his temptation, and then his work frees us into joy. And yet, 2,100 years ago, this entire people group worshipped on Saturday. And then they began in the tens and then the hundreds and the thousands, both to worship on Sunday and to die, proclaiming that he and not Caesar and he and not us is Lord. I want to remind you of the historical verifiableness of the Gospels. I cannot stand up here and convince you that snakes can talk. I can tell you that thousands and thousands and thousands of people have died saying that he is Lord and believing that the snake both could talk and both represented death and was himself an adversary and that Jesus defeated him in a final way, though he has not yet returned. 
as I was wrestling through this text all week, I really wanted it to be applicable and tacticable and practicable. You know what I mean. Tactical, practical, applicable. But here's the thing. If we understand the joy offered to us in the gospel, if we received the peace in our heart that Christ's work accomplished by faith, we will naturally make it applicable. We will naturally share with others the things that tempt us. We will naturally talk to God like a psalmist about life as we actually experience it and move towards freedom. I remember um, in college, I was leading a a small group with junior high and then senior high young men and and man who was best man in my wedding and vice versa. He's not a pastor. He's not a pastor in New England. Um, We were having, oh man, how much time we had. We were wordsmithing something with our small groups. He was, in, he was leading a different small group than I was, and we were struggling because we could tell that whenever sin would come up, our guys would think that we were having a discussion about what they should and should not do, and what was right and wrong. And I want to offer to you that the word wrong, when we're talking about sin, is not nearly as helpful to us as the word destructive. That's the conclusion he and I came up with. In steak and shake. Are those still around? I don't see any in New England. And the reason, and I continue to think this is true 23 years later, because when we say sin is wrong, we're following it to a platonic dualism that our mind and our body are separate, which leads us into an evangelical nihilism, that the goal of the Christian life is to stop sinning and to get to heaven with as much stuff as possible. And that's not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to worship God and thereby receive his joy. The other problem with describing sin as wrong is it's not relational towards God or neighbor. And our sin affects both. And it's just not motivating to most people. To some, to some, it's motivating. But I wonder if that motivation is warm-hearted, the way that God means it. Jesus freed us into the with God life. So the original outline is, we follow the king as he guards his heart and resists true temptation. But the real outline is we follow the king as he guards his heart and frees us from the power of these things. I have said this before. I need to say it again because it's true. The beginning of temptation is a whisper. And it might come from the evil one. It might come from our own flesh. Romans 7, we are not fully sanctified, though our hearts are made new. It might come from the world, which is also under the curse. And the whisper is something like this. God doesn't love you or like you. It starts there. That's what Satan implied to Adam and Eve. It's also that God doesn't know what's best for us. That's where the whisper starts. And it's subconscious, right? We've already sinned before we thought about it. I think that we think of temptation as the thing that we know that's wrong, and then there's this gap. And we long for God to help us in that gap, and that's part of it. But it's also subconscious. It also begins before we even think about it. For many of us, one of those uh, potential sins that I listed, the email, the website, the drink, the eat, the lie, the silence, we do that without thinking about it, right? And I think for Christians, it's like, I know God loves me because he has to, right? Because he's God. This is actually why the Trinity is so important. If God has existed in Trinity since no time, because he exists outside of time, then he didn't need us. He didn't need to create us. He already had a loving community, which was himself, which I know is mind-blowing. But it's part of what's so essential. 
God did not need us. He created us as an outflow of love. You know, like that's kind of convincing. For a lot of Christians, I'm not confident that they believe God likes them. Zephaniah 3.17 says that God rejoices over us with singing. You don't rejoice over someone with singing that you only love. You're for them, but you don't like them. You don't want to hang out with them. You don't like their sense of humor or their voice or how they walk or how emotional they are or how unemotional they are. The beginning of temptation is some whisper that God doesn't love you. Or perhaps God loves you, but he doesn't like you. That's an insidious one. He certainly doesn't know what's best. And it was so faint you didn't realize it. And now it's been 10 years since you spoke with that person. And, and hey, relationships require wisdom. And friendship requires prayer and intention and wise risk and time. Yes, I don't know if you should talk to that person, but I do know that sometimes we cut people out of our lives without thinking about it, without praying about it, without asking a close friend. And the reason is not because we're sinful, though that's part of it. The reason is because temptation starts with a whisper that we're often not even aware of. And it doesn't sound like anything. It's a tendency. I've been hurt by this person, so I'm just going to run away, even though some of the hurt was unintentional, or much of it, or all of it. The other thing I want to say about temptation is this. I'm 42. I've been through some things. I've worked full-time for two churches and for three and, and another ministry on the side. When we're talking about temptation, the most profound sadness I see is in the eyes and the words of people who don't believe there's freedom from that pattern of sin, from that addiction, from that tendency that you mostly have under control, but you have it under control because of a vice grip of self-control that some of you have, not because Jesus has freed you. I want you to know that that is an incredibly profound lie, that there isn't freedom in this life from that pattern or tendency or addiction. Even the one that you're thinking of right now, that's the lie telling you he doesn't understand. And part of the lie is true. I don't. I don't know what it's like to be you. I do know that there's freedom and real life. And it is challenging because if you're looking at the text, I take this as one of the most profound temptation core characteristic descriptions for a follower of Jesus. But cons- and Jesus is talking about both a near end times event, the destruction of Jerusalem, and talking about the, the end times when he returns to earth and renews it to his disciples, Mark chapter 13. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. But be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus says, be on guard, stay awake. Be on guard to his gospel. Don't wait to worship God. 
Don't wait to do community with your fellow followers of Jesus because these things lead to peace and to life. Don't wait to be faithfully present to your neighbors, which looks different than it did. But we are not to wait for these things. Here's the most profound application of temptation. You have been saved by grace through no work of your own. You receive that by faith because of the love of God that did not need to create you or need you. It is out of love and choice and affection that he's rescued you from the power of sin and death into life and joy and peace. If you believe that, if you receive it by faith, if you kneel down and say, I believe, help my unbelief, the Holy Spirit then frees you into all of the practical and tactical and applicable ways of living that life that he purchased for you. He will teach you where the whisper comes from, usually somewhere in our story where we made an agreement through prayer and conversation with others and time. We can learn where those voices come from. We break the agreements and reject them and we receive the grace of Jesus. We receive the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit where we're freed from the power of sin and death into life and joy and peace. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you for instituting your sacrament. That you connect our smell and our mouth and our stomach to our mind and our emotions and our will and our guts. We thank you that this sacrament transcends time. We thank you that this sacrament transcends space. Ask, Lord, that we would experience in our very being, all that this does to guard and seal us to you and for you. Father, we praise and thank you for defeating the snake, the serpent, the evil one. Enable and empower and enliven us, Holy Spirit, into the lives of life that you purchased through his defeat. Amen.